Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Interviews Podcast, a series of brief conversations with leading China experts on key issues in the Sino-American relationship. For more interviews, videos, and links to events, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Jan Barris, Vice President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and I'm delighted this afternoon to welcome Barbara Finnamore, the Senior Attorney and Senior Strategic Director for Asia at the National Resources Defense Council to the National Committee's podcast interview series. I'm delighted for a number of reasons, not least of which is that I've known Barbara and her husband, who's also a China specialist for many, many years, and we're delighted to have her with us today, especially because she has just come out with a new book that someone told me before I read it was sort of filled with a lot of technical things and dense, and so I thought, oh my God, that's not gonna be my cup of tea. But when I sat down to read it, I found that it was an, that was not the case at all. And instead, it's a book that's both interesting, a quick read, and just filled with lots of good information about China's path on how to change its environmental policies from ones that perhaps we and they were not so fond of 15 years ago to now a new path that's actually a model for the rest of the world to follow. So let me start out, Barbara, by just again saying how pleased I am to welcome you here. And just, I was on a train a couple years ago and my seatmate was someone who, when he heard that I was involved in China, somehow we got involved in talking about what China and the United States are doing vis-a-vis energy policy. So this was maybe two or three years ago. And he was very anti-China in this. And he said, oh, they're killing their people, the air is terrible, the pollution is awful, the water. And I said, well, yes, part of that's true, but actually they're doing quite a bit to clean things up and they're investing more in renewable energy than we are and they're doing and he just was having none of it he just had this old mantra in his head that china was a bad player and we were a good player and i in order so that i can be a better interlocutor in the future when i come up against someone like that can you sort of walk us through what brought china from the disastrous performance at the December 2009 Copenhagen climate negotiations to where just a few years later, China played a crucial role in the Paris climate deal. And President Xi Jinping just proclaimed in his speech last year at the 19th Party Congress that, and I'm gonna quote this, China has become an important participant, contributor, and torchbearer in the global endeavor of ecological civilization. So two questions from that. One, can you define ecological civilization for our listeners who don't know what that means? But more important, what happened in the past six years to make such an abrupt change in China's policies? Thank you, Jan. It's a pleasure to see you again and to be here at the National Committee. And you asked some very good questions. My book actually explores China's remarkable transformation from a climate outlier who indeed was widely blamed for the failure of the Copenhagen summit to reach a global climate treaty to what President Xi now calls a climate torchbearer. And 
a leader in the global clean energy revolution. And I think I can explain it very simply. China, like most other countries, has always acted in what it perceives to be its own national interest. And for many years, it believed that resisting obligations to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions were not in its own best interest, was a plot by the West to keep it from developing. But the evolution of China's thinking, it still is acting in its own self-interest, but it has redefined that self-interest to include climate change action. Why is that? Because within the uh, definition of climate change action, we see China realizing that climate change action is essential to protect its own energy security as its oil imports continue to rise, to protect its food security and its water security, because China is one of the countries that's most vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. It's already very vulnerable in terms of water scarcity, but climate change is exacerbating that. And as a result, it's already limiting China's ability to feed its own people. China also recognizes that taking action on climate change is helping it to make the kind of economic transition that it wants to make away from a model that's dependent on heavy industry powered by coal towards a more service-based economy. China also recognizes that global clean energy is the leading market opportunity of the 21st century. And as Premier Wen Jiabao said, China was late to the Industrial Revolution. It was slow to capitalize on the dot-com revolution, but it was determined to lead the clean ed energy revolution. All of those are true, but what really triggered the change, I believe, was in two thir 2013, when the air pollution became so choking. The apocalypse. The air apocalypse that the Chinese government recognized that it had to act. And the major source of China's air pollution and its greenhouse gas emissions is the same. It's coal. China consumes as much coal as the rest of the world put together. And ever since that air apocalypse, China has been taking action to dethrone old King Coal. So you've been at this work for many years. You've devoted your professional life to it. I imagine you derive a great deal of satisfaction from the changes that have gone on in China, and I hope that you feel that you and your organization have, in fact, been a part of bringing about some of these changes in attitudes. Can you just tell us briefly how the Natural Resources Defense Council first came to be in China in the first place? Um, you were the first international NGO to launch a clean energy program in China. What gave you the chutzpah to think that you could do it, that the Chinese would let you do it? And what were the main challenges you faced in bringing that about? 
It's an interesting story. I actually began my career at NRDC in our Washington office as a litigator. And I would probably still be doing that today if I hadn't married a U.S. diplomat and moved with him to Beijing in 1990. Now, the timing was so interesting. This was right when every country in the world was preparing to go to the UN Conference on Environment and Development at Rio. That's the conference where the Framework Convention on Climate Change was signed. And I was lucky enough to get a job with the UN Development Program in Beijing and to really play a role in helping China prepare for the conference and to implement its commitments, including to develop the very first sustainable development blueprint, Agenda 21, for the 21st century. China was the first country in the world to do that. I was lucky enough to help them be an advisor to them in the preparation of that. So I got to meet people from every single government agency, from environment to agriculture to health to planning, and learn from them what, they, what China needed to move in a more sustainable development direction. That's and certainly I, very helpful. I was pretty much the first uh, U.S. environmentalist to be in Beijing at the time. Mm -hmm. But because I had spent so many years at NRDC already, I could see the role that NRDC could play in helping to bring U.S. best practices to China. And so when I came back to Washington, I wrote a memo to the head of NRDC. I said, we need to have a China clean energy program. My understanding is that China will overtake the U.S. as the leading emitter of greenhouse gases in 2040. Well, it turned out that 2040, it was we did it 2006. A lot than that. Yes. <laughs> but that was enough to get NRDC, the visionary leaders there, to allow me to begin this program. And because I had already spent several years, actually five years, uh, with the UN, meeting the people who were really leading the charge in China, I, that's what gave me the confidence that I could continue to work with them in my capacity uh, at NRDC. So how did you go about it? Did you just pick up the phone or go knock on doors and contact all these folks you'd met when you were working with the UN? Not exactly. Chongqing had just been declared an independent provincial-level mm -hmm. municipality mm -hmm. because of the Three Gorges Dam construction. Right. We thought we should go to Chongqing and start something new there. Well. I couldn't think of anything more difficult when I look back on it now. They had no idea what an NGO was. There were no Chinese NGOs at the time. There were the only other U.S. or international NGO, I believe, was the World Wildlife Fund that was working to protect the panda. Right. So and the Sichuan. people we met there had no idea what we were doing. And we came in to talk to them about green buildings mm -hmm. when there was... No, no concept in the right. country about that. And, and they said, here, that's fine. Here's a building you can help us redesign as a green building. So we went to our experts. We came back to them with a plan. Mm -hmm. And nothing happened for a year. And it was only when we hired our first Chinese colleague 
that he went to Chongqing and found out they were waiting for the check for us to pay for the renovations. <laughs> so as you can imagine, it was fraught yes. with misunderstandings and yes. confusion for a, quite a long time. But once it the match once you paid the once you wrote the check or found somebody no, else to do that we didn't write the check we brought together a coalition of U.S. companies okay. that together put actually we moved from Chongqing to a uh, building in Beijing mm -hmm. that the U.S. and Chinese governments had decided should be the first, the first green building but nobody had any money so we brought together a coalition of U.S. and European companies mm -hmm. that all sold their equipment, their very green equipment, to China at the cost of you know, regular ener energy inefficient right. ones. And that's how that first building was built, which became a model for the entire system uh, of green buildings in China. Well, it's wonderful that you had the guts to start that, that you found a Chinese to go and figure out what the holdup was. Um, because clearly both you and NRDC has done an enormous amount, as have the Chinese. I mean, all credit really has to go to them with not all credit because there are not just American but other um, environmental organizations around the world. In fact, in the, in the whole sphere of civil society in China, it's the envir international environmental groups that have had, I think, the major impact in terms of being able to help think about, help China think about where it might be going uh, in this world, in this field, and made huge inroads and, and had enormous successes, which redound not just to the benefit of China, but to the whole world. So congratulations for that. You want to add something? I just want to add a shout out to my mm -hmm. colleagues. We now have 50 people in our office in Beijing wow. who every day are working to help China curb pollution and accelerate the transition to a clean, low carbon economy. Well, that's terrific. Unfortunately, our time has come to an end. And I want to thank you again for doing this. I want to urge all of our readers, if you've liked this first 10, 12 minutes or so of listening to Barbara. We hope you will watch the video which we are about to make in the presentation that she does on this book that she's written. Again, I want to tell you all you should go out and get it. Barbara Finnamore, Will China Save the Planet is the name of the book. It can be found on Amazon. And Barbara was just informed by Amazon that it has just been named as the number one new release in public policy which is a great thrill for everybody. So thanks again, Barbara. Thank we appreciate you, Jan. It.